Happy anniversary, everybody. Happy 12 years. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, we are, and just thank you to everyone who's serving. Let's give a round of applause for everyone serving today. So many people serving. And a huge thank you to Rochelle for the balloon arch and for all the fun things that have happened. And Grant as well. Don't forget Grant. Thank you to you guys and everyone, everyone serving today. It means so much. Uh, we are... In, in the beginning, it's a perfect week to be here. It's a great week to be here because we're right at the beginning of this Exodus series. We started it last week, and we're continuing today. We looked at Exodus chapter 1 last week. This week, we'll be looking at Exodus chapter 2. It will be on the screen. Whichever, if you're here looking at this screen or your home looking at your, own, your, your, your TV screen, it'll be on the screen. And uh, what we learned last week was that uh, the end of Genesis, because Genesis and Exodus is just one continuous story, and at the end of Genesis, what happened was God had sent, essentially sent Joseph, this Hebrew, this Israelite, to Egypt to save Egypt from this famine, and he was raised up by God in a very prominent position politically, and he was really used by God in a powerful way. And, uh, but we see that then that generation dies. The, the, these Hebrews, these Israelites, they stay there, and they, they multiply like rabbits. They're getting married, having kids, lots of babies. They're multiplying. Things are looking pretty good for them. But the Egyptians are in dread of them. They're nervous because they're not multiplying so much, and they're worried about losing dominance and power, military power, and they're worried about war. And what's going to happen with these Israelites if we end up having war with somebody else? Are they going to turn against us? So they, they decide to enslave them. And to oppress them. And we, we, it tells us that Pharaoh that day didn't know Joseph. He didn't know the good history of what had happened. He forgot it. And then it led to this, this genocide of these Israelite boys. And we see these Egyptian midwives. They were not complicit in this genocide. They resisted. And they did the right thing. And they would not throw the baby boys into the Nile as they had been commanded to do or to, to strangle them, essentially, as they, as they were being born, which is a horrific thing to be told to do. But that's what's happened in this story. So that leads us to chapter 2 today. Chapter 2. We're going to read it in a second. But we see God raising up in chapter 2. We see God raising up a deliverer, a leader. And we're going to learn how God works in His redemptive plans to save people, how He uses flawed, broken, weak people. He raises up people to significant positions, but they're deeply flawed. He uses people like us, people like me and you, people like Moses. More than that, though, we're going we're to see that, but more than that, we're going to see actually how this story, like all other stories in the Bible, is ultimately about Jesus, about the person, the coming, the work and ministry of Jesus, all pointing towards that. Let's pray. Jesus, help us today. Help us to understand your word. Give us insight and wisdom and revelation and give us courage to, to, to obey your word and to see the truth of your word, to be shaped by it. God, meet us in our needs. Touch us today. Help us to follow you. And I pray for those today that don't know you. God, bring them into that relationship with you. Convince them. Persuade them. Let them be convicted and let them know that you're the one true God. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Exodus chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole chapter, so bear with me here. It's good to read long sections of Scripture together. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. Doesn't normally happen that quickly, but there we go. 
And when, we saw, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took him for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it in bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds of the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done with him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruo, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son. Again, doesn't normally happen that quickly. And he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And God knew. Moses' mother cannot keep her baby boy hidden for much longer. He's getting, those, lung, those pipes are getting stronger and louder. It's hard to hide a person. You know, it's kind of hard to hide a person, especially a young person that's being kind of noisy and, you know, demanding. And so, uh, 
what's interesting, kind of like the, the Egyptian midwives last week that we looked at, they, they, they find a way to kind of look like they're obeying this order from the evil Pharaoh, uh, and, uh, but, but still not perpetrate evil. And so in a similar way, Moses' mother has cast Moses into the Nile, because they were supposed to throw the babies into the Nile. So she has cast him into the Nile, but it's, he's in a flotation device in the Nile. So, and, and cleverly, strategically placed him in an in a, in a area where the, the royal um, princesses go to bathe. So she's taking some liberties, but they're good, they're good liberties, you know. <laughs> looking like I'm obeying, but, but, but trying to set this up to, 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 to save this child, my, my own child's life. So technically, she's, she's following the orders, but, but not really, taking some liberties. We, but we see, even in these circumstances, right away, we see God's hand is working to preserve Moses' life. God's hand is at work immediately protecting this child, and he's going to be raised up to be a deliverer, to be a leader. Now, we can... It's human nature to do this. We can overly emphasize somebody's stature and prominence and importance or their, their, their influence, their position. We can put leaders on a pedestal, sometimes praising them too much, giving them too much credit, sometimes giving them too much criticism as well. That's a, the danger of somebody, anybody in a significant role. And what we forget is we forget this is a big team effort. You've got Moses' mother and his sister and Pharaoh's daughter all playing key components of this story to bring about God's purposes. And it's a, I think it's a, an initial reminder, an initial, initial lesson to us that sometimes we can, we, we can never believe the lie that like, oh, important people, important people or influential people are self-made, impressive people. We're all supposed to be like that. Not so much. We'll have different callings. We'll have different opportunities. We'll have different giftings. And yes, there are some people that their calling is more public and they maybe have a, a greater influence and reach, but that's not the point. The point is this is a big team effort. All these people are involved, used by God in significant ways. We have these three women who are doing this. Moses' sister, Moses' mother, Pharaoh's daughter, all working. Whether they know it or not, there's a big team effort behind each one of us. Whether we're in an, in an influential position or we're obscure, there's a whole group of people behind each of us who have shaped us, who make us. Who, God's the greatest one shaping us, working in our lives. But then so many other people that God uses and God calls to influence us. We're not self-made people. We're not important people to be put on a pedestal and to be raised up. We're, we're, just, we're part of a team, part of God's effort, part of God's plan, part of God's work. Now, all these leaders, I mean, you got, you got, you know, this, Moses is a very significant leader in, in the Bible, very extremely significant leader. You have others too. You've got King David. You've got other people that, that rise to the top in terms of like prominence in that way. But no matter who they are, they're deeply flawed people, and they are essentially a foreshadowing. They're pointing to the greatest deliverer and the greatest leader, Jesus. And so we see some parallels happening here. Whoa, a balloon popped. Did that seem extra loud? That seemed very loud. Take a deep breath. I feel like someone's like setting off a firecracker or something. <laughs> it was three balloons at once. Oh, I think. Grant's making signals at me. It's Egyptian hieroglyphics or something. I don't know. All right, let's, uh, let's refocus here. If you're online, you didn't know what happened. A balloon popped and it was very loud. All right. <laughs> Good morning, yeah. God's hand is at work, something, I don't know. 
Also, another thing to note that happened today that was very exciting was somebody planted a tree outside our church building. I don't know, I don't know uh, who did it or why they did it, but I love it. I walked past it this morning, almost missed it, and I was like, this is a sign that God is doing something new. It's out of nowhere, someone put a, stuck a tree straight in the ground, and it looks fantastic. I love it. So say hi to the tree as you leave and respect the tree and be grateful for new life and God doing new things and for exploding balloons. All right. There was no relevance to that. I just wanted to share it. <laughs> Where did I get to? We see some parallels here. God raising up Moses and any leader, any, any leader in the Old Testament throughout the story of God's salvation history, God wanting to come in and break into the evil of the world and redeem the world and restore our relationship with him. God raises up key people. He uses all these people. It's a big team effort, but there are key people that do key things at key times. And we see some parallels here. So we see the genocide happening uh, in, from the Egyptians to the, to the Hebrews, the Israelites. Well, we see the parallel that, with that with Jesus. So when Jesus is born... King Herod orders all of the Israelite boys, all the, the, the Jewish boys, to be murdered. It's a parallel. We also, the other parallel is, obviously Moses is raised as an Egyptian, interestingly enough. Jesus, because of this genocide that happened, so Jesus obviously was born thousands of, you know, a few thousand years later after Moses. But the, another parallel is that they had to flee to Egypt. So Jesus spent some of his early life being raised in Egypt as well. Now, these parallels, they're not just coincidences. They're not just like, oh, it's interesting to see that there's a pattern here. These things, God designs these things to happen in this way to validate and to reveal to us, to show us that it's his plan, that he's at work. He's giving clues and things pointing to a greater thing that's happening. It's always the coming of Jesus and the work of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the second coming that we're looking forward to of Jesus coming back again. All of these things pointing to this. So we have some immediate clues that the, the, the life of Moses, his, his destiny, is going to be significant. We also see that in that his, his father and his mother were Levites. So Levi was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob was the one who wrestled with the Lord, and his name was changed to Israel. He's kind of the, the, one of the key figures descended from Abraham as well. And one of his sons, Levi, who's the brother of Joseph and Levi, they're... they're that line, that brother, his line became a tribe of priests. And so, again, from their perspective, they wouldn't have seen it this way. But from our perspective, we can see, again, this is another marker. Moses is going to be a mediator between heaven and earth. Moses is going to be used in this priestly way. It's another indicator, another sign. We see Moses is saved and adopted. Saved and adopted. Saved from being murdered, from infanticide, but also saved and adopted. We see this is the work of God. He doesn't just call us out of the darkness. See, see we, we live in a, in a day and age where we, freedom is an end of itself. Freedom is an end of itself. I don't want to be free of all things. Actually, what the Bible tells us is that freedom is for a reason. You're set free from darkness so that you can live into the light. You're set free from evil ways so you can live in to the good works that God has prepared and planned for us to do. We can't ever lose sight of that. So to follow Jesus, when we follow Jesus, we have our own personal exodus, our own personal exiting of a, the darkness of the world and the flesh and all those things and d demonic forces as well. We put all that, we turn away from all that, we repent of that, put all of that behind us, and then we live into, we say goodbye to Egypt, and we receive an inheritance, and we live into this inheritance, this new life. I'm going to build this new life. 
with God, and it's going to be an alternate life to the life that the world wants to live, and the world tells me the, the identity the world tries to give me, I'm going to live into this, the identity that God, I'm, so I'm, ad- I'm not just saved, I'm not just taken out of something, I'm adopted and brought into, given a new identity, a new family, a new purpose, a new reason for living and for being. Very exciting. Now, the, the, the foundational action of all this happening is really important because it validates Moses' authority. Because Moses is going to have to be raised up to call the people to leave Egypt. This is going to be hard. It's not going to be an easy, you know, this is going to be a very difficult challenge, not, not an easy task at all. And so these things happening, they validate the authority that Moses is going to have to display in leading the people out and later on receiving the Ten Commandments. And it's important that, that, that you see God's hand at work in Moses' life, validating that, that he is God's chosen instrument to lead the people out and to receive the moral law. It's not just a dude making stuff up. God's hand is at work. But notice the way that God's hand is at work. These are very kind of very, the calling on Moses is kind of, it's very ordinary. I mean, these are dire circumstances, don't get me wrong, like, you know, genocide is a dire circumstance, but like, think about these, you know, later on there are plagues and like dramatic things that happen and supernatural things that happen, uh, out of the ordinary things that happen, but, but th- this situation at this time, this is very, very human. There's a basket with some stuff stuck to it to make it float, so it's watertight. And his sister's there, she's keeping an eye. Pharaoh's daughter's there. These, 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 there are dire circumstances, but they're kind of like human circumstances, aren't they? They're kind of human things. They're kind of normal things in one sense. And we can, I think sometimes we can get stuck because we, we're looking for God's validation or God's will to be revealed to us or God's calling to be clear to us or God's purposes to be clear to us. We're looking for it to be written in the clouds or to be some kind of outrageously massive thing that, that is like completely clear, and that can happen. There are times that happens. Or, so we get stuck because we were looking for that and we're not seeing it, or we get stuck because we're like, well, I don't have an inner peace about this thing, so I'm not going to do it. And now there are times, there are times that you, you get a sense of, you know, the, the, the peace of the Spirit, and you're like, I feel good about, about this thing. But you've got to realize there's not a Bible verse to hang that on. There's really not a Bible, because most of the, the callings that God has for us, they're, they're not comfortable. <laughs> you don't feel good about them. You're like, this is actually, I don't know why, God. Why would you call me to do this? This is discomforting, and, and I don't like this. What's, so so we, get, we, we get stuck between these two extremes of, I've just, I need to have a peace about it, or I need to see some dramatic thing happen to validate it, and we forget that God works through, works through all those things, also through very kind of human circumstances the human activity around us. We've got to be, have our eyes open to that. God's not, things aren't just happening by accident. God's at work orchestrating, planning, doing things. Now, these Egyptian midwives last week were used by God to save these uh, lots of Israelite baby boys. Praise God for that. But then also we see God using Pharaoh's own daughter to save a Hebrew baby boy might be tempting for us to want to vilify all of the Egyptians. You've got a corrupt state, a corrupt system, a corrupt power doing awful, terrible things. It might be easy for us to want to vilify all of them, and not re- but the Bible won't let us do that because we see redemptive things happening within that corrupt system. People doing redemptive works, people subverting the evil ways that are being put upon them, that they're being called into, pushing back on it. 
Now, Moses, so Moses is, is, is saved and adopted, and uh, he was raised as an Egyptian, so he would have been educated with other Egyptian princes. I mean, even you know, movies that have been made about, about the life of Moses, right? He was prince of Egypt. He would have been raised with other princes and had a top education. And even, it's interesting, once he flees and goes to Midian, they refer to him as an Egyptian. I don't know if he introduced himself as an Egyptian, or if they're just like the way he sounds, his accent, the way he talks, the way he acts, the way he looks. This guy's fully taken on the Egyptian culture, educated that way, life of privilege, life of safety, life of comfort, all kind of comforts, all kind of opportunities and safety. And even his name is given to him by his, his adoptive Egyptian mother. She says, you, you know, I, I drew you out of the water. She's, she's, she's marking him, giving him that, that name, that identity. You know, one of the, that's, think about that. Moses, you know, one of the key people in the Old Testament, is named by an Egyptian. This guy was shaped by this. But we, we see, we see this, this, this illustration of water being drawn out of the water. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful... The water imagery is powerful throughout the Bible. You see it even in the book of Exodus later on when the people, you know, pass through the waters part, and they pass through the waters, waters, and it's almost like God is drawing them through and out of the waters. So it's this happening early on in, in Moses' life, and his name being called this is, again, a foreshadowing of the great thing that God's going to do in the Exodus when they actually are dramatically saved at the very last kind of second, as it seems. But you see this, this is another parallel with Jesus, because Moses is the first one, first Israelite, to be drawn out. So through Moses, he's the first one that gets drawn out so that all the others through him can be drawn out. That's how it works. That's how God does stuff. But then you see the same thing with Jesus. Jesus, it says that Jesus, that when he was resurrected, that he was the, essentially the firstborn into the new kingdom of God. So that then all of us, who are then saved into God's kingdom, we're, he made a way for us then to enter into that new kingdom with him, goes ahead of us. It's the imagery in the Bible, the parallels in the Bible that you see are wonderful, powerful things. And he also says, you know, Jesus says to his disciples, like, you know, they're, they're, they're fishermen. And he calls them, out, calls them out onto the water. You know, Jesus, you know, doesn't need a basket to float on water. He just walks on water. You know, there's all these different parallels. But even with his own disciples, he calls them out onto the water, through the water. He says, I'm not, you're not going to be fishers anymore. You're going to be fishers of men now. There's all these different things that, 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 that happen. Now, Moses at this time was around 30 to 40 years of age, and it says that he went out, you know, so he's lived a, a comfortable life, raised in Egypt, all these luxuries, and he's 30 or 40 years old, and he goes out, and he sees, he obviously is aware that he's an Israelite, he can tell that he's an Israelite, but raised him as an Egyptian, and he sees his own people, and he sees, sees their burden, he sees their burden. That word, but when it says he sees their burden, it doesn't just mean he just saw what was happening. He noticed. It means to be burdened means he saw with emotion. He was moved by his own people's suffering and mistreatment. Now, I'm, I'm 41 years old, so you can use me as a bit of a proxy for, for how old Moses would have been. Actually, that might be a bad idea because I look so young for my age, so that was probably a bad idea to do that, but you get the idea. Thank you for laughing at that. Um, <laughs> I lost, my, lost my, my place with that one. We see, we see that Moses, you know, 30 to 40 years old, that's kind of a long time, right? It tells us a couple of things. 
it's really hard. It's really hard for people to see the suffering and oppression of others. It's really hard. It's taken a long time. It can take a really long time to actually see. And we want to be like Moses. We want to see the plight of others. But we recognize that it's really hard. It can take a long time. And so, even if you see it, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that, that our hearts are actually burdened by it. Because it's easy to be indifferent, too. We're, we're, we're selfish, self-centered people. So it's easy to want to not know what's going on, the suffering of others. But also, if we become aware of it, it can be easy to not be moved by it. And the hard thing for us is we're constantly bombarded with all kinds of terrible things because our world is so connected now, bombarded by all these terrible things. So we live in a time perhaps of outrage and anger. This generation is more socially aware than any other generation. That, that's, a good, that's a good thing, caring about issues of justice. But we, we're in danger of just being outraged and angry and not having compassion. There's a difference. There's a difference between outrage and compassion. I see a couple of issues happening here, a couple of issues that we face, just as Moses faced. It can take a long time, and we have to give each other a long time to actually see. It's so hard to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, to get out of your own, especially if, 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 if life has been somewhat comfortable, had a pretty you know, decent, somewhat decent life, you haven't faced too many hardships. It's so hard to really get out of your own out of your own way and look into somebody else's life and have that compassion. And, the, and really the only way to do it is to move closer to people. And what's sad about that is that we're in a time where we seem to be drawing away from each other and more and more isolated from each other. But we need to push closer. The Bible says associate with the lowly. So no matter, the thing I love about that is no matter how lowly you are, the Bible says associate with the lowly. So it's always somebody who's a bit more lowly than you are. And then in those relationships, that's where you begin to see the pain and the difficulty that other people face. There's no other way to do it. You can't do it through a screen. You can't do it through social media. You can't do it that way. It has to be connections with other people where you begin to see and have compassion for the pain. And it takes, it takes time. And we can be impatient with ourselves or impatient with other people if they don't see it the way we see it. Moses was 30 or 40 years old until his eyes opened up. And once his eyes opened up to his own fellow people being oppressed and misused and mistreated... He can go back. Once you see something, you, you can't unsee it. You can't stop. You realize this is a problem. This is a major problem. So the, the compassion component, that's, that's the key. Not just being outraged and angry. And, and, and the thing that we also suffer with in our day and age is we want to make a lot of noise online, a lot of digital noise to make it look like we care about things. But we're, again, expressing that outrage. But are, are, are our hearts really compassionate? Are we doing something that's actually touching a life? making a difference in somebody's life, showing that real compassion for the oppression and mistreatment of other people or people or groups. That compassion component so important, so necessary. The other challenge, the other issue I see here that can take time to figure out is actually identifying the true nature of some people's disadvantage. The true nature of some people's disadvantage. You know, some people are in terrible circumstances Sometimes it's because they're oppressed, but sometimes it's not. Different reasons. And this is perhaps where Moses goes wrong in some regard, that he's reacting out of emotion, not out of wisdom. But for us, discerning what is the true nature, and that can, again, that's very difficult to do and can take a very long time. What is the true nature of somebody's disadvantage? What, 
How do they get to the place they're in? What are the contributing factors? What are the things going on? How can I be a part of it? How can I understand it? And there's, there's no quick answers. Anyone with a quick answer, you know, is already probably missing something. There's no quick answers. It's complicated sometimes. Let me give you an example of what I mean to, to, to flesh this out. In the, in the Soviet Union back in the day, they had a, a collectivist farming ideology and actually forced their farmers to sell their land. And they put a lot of pressure on them and essentially evicted them so that there could be kind of a collective ownership or even a centralized ownership of the, 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 the food chain and the supply of food and the, the farming industry. And what they did was they kind of, they, and then they, they were really oppressing these people, forcing them to do this. And it was kind of a bad situation. But then any of the intellectuals in the culture that had the power and the influence and the, the knowledge to actually point it out, to come against it, to resist it, they vilified those people and oppressed those people and silenced them as well. So they intentionally targeted them. And these are people who are prominent people, people, you know, more, more uh, wealthy um, peasants who owned land, forced them to sell it and then vilified uh, the intellectuals of the day uh, who had the power to do something about it. They, 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 they turned the society against them. Well, what do you think happened? The food supply was destroyed. So over five, more than five million people starved to death. This is between 1931 and 1934. And that includes 3.9 million Ukrainians as well because they destroyed their food supply. That, that would be, so this is an example of not of a culture that starts vilifying certain people but not understanding what's actually going on not having the discernment of it. So you've got compassion because you care, but say, actually, I'm being manipulated by this somehow. It would be, let me give you uh, an example for this. Let's say we vilified our doctors, and we start saying, doctors are really bad. Doctors are doing all this terrible stuff. We've got to, and, we, and, we, and we drive them all out of their careers. Well, then when you need a surgery or someone's ill, someone goes to the ER, they don't get treated because there are no doctors. Or firefighters, you know, you say you vilify firefighters. Well, more people are going to per perish in firefighters because we've driven them all from their or TSA agents, let's say you vilify TSA agents, you know, planes are going to be target, you know, easier targets for terrorists, you know, that kind of thing. Or lawyers, you vilify lawyers. No, actually, you can vilify lawyers, that's okay. No, that's a joke. That's, that's unfair on lawyers. Actually, defense lawyers are really important because people are being falsely accused. You want somebody to, you know, if you are being fal falsely accused, you want somebody to advocate for you, especially if everything looked like it was against you. <laughs> you don't, you know, now, the good thing about Moses' story is Moses accurately discerned and saw that his people were being oppressed. He saw that. His approach, his reaction was wrong, though. So we've got to have that compassion piece where we care about it. We're not just outraged. We actually care about it. But then also we're discerning. We're trying to understand some of the things. What's led to this? How do we understand this? Am I seeing this correctly? Moses has the right compassion, and God had given him a heart of justice, even though he was raised as an Egyptian and probably identified with Egyptian culture in many regards, God had given him this great heart for justice and cared about his own people. What a gift. What a gift that God gave him that. He correctly identifies the problem, but yeah, his reaction is, is wrong. He, he murders this Egyptian. Now, I mean, if you see someone mistreating somebody else, you're going to be angry about it. You're going to want to react. I, mean, I, don't blame the, I don't blame him necessarily, but it looks kind of premeditated. He's kind of looking around. No one around. Great. Kill the guy, bury him in the sand. Now Moses has become just like the very people that he wants to stop. This is not the right reaction to have. 
He's all, it's all heart and no head. This is his kind of like social justice warrior phase that he's going through, that he wants to kind of like mature him a little bit more. Well, what's ironic about this is Moses, who's now a murderer, is the very man that God gives the Ten Commandments to. One of the most famous commandments, of course, is you shall not murder. So God gives a murderer the responsibility to implement the moral law that's the standard for all humanity is it's wrong to murder people. I mean, it's, it's a huge sign that we, we don't invent these things. We're not the, 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 the creators of these things. That God is the one revealing these things to us. As Christians, we want to care. We want to be connected. We want to be connected to people's pain and see people's pain. But also, doesn't Moses seem a little bit naive? Because he, he, he comes, he sees these, then these two Hebrews fighting each other. He's like, why are you guys fighting each other? We're brothers, you know, essentially. I'm kind of paraphrasing here. He seems a little bit naive, not realizing that it's not just, it's not just that the Egyptians, it's not just the Israelites need to be saved from slavery, from Egyptian slavery, but they also need to be saved from their own sin. And that's the work that Jesus has come to do. He's come to save us from our own sin. And it says God knew. God, they cried out. God had Moses pegged as a deliverer, somebody to save them. God had him chosen. I'm going to raise up Moses because I hate this evil that's happening to my own people. And I'm going to send him in to set my people free. And God responded to their prayer. God, when it says God knew at the end there, what it means is it means that God, not he just noticed, he understood. What That gives us great comfort. God understands the suffering and the oppression and the pain that we face. He knows it. He knew. And then it says God remembers Remember his covenant. That doesn't mean he forgot. He's like, oh, whoops, my bad. Just, you know, momentarily had a lapse there of judge, you know, memory. It doesn't mean that. What it means is it means that God is now acting on his promise. When it says God remembers, it's saying God is now saying, that's just the way it's, that's the meaning of those words. God is now saying, I'm going to now act on this. Now, the big question is, why does God wait? We like that God hates this evil. We like that God hates this slavery. We like that God hates this oppression. And by the way, if we lived in those, those times, we, we, we wouldn't have this heart of justice. That we, we, the reason we care about justice as a society is because we're founded in Scripture. Our, our civilization is birthed out of biblical ideals. That's why we care about justice, because we've got a Christian heritage. But if we lived in these times, in these contexts, we wouldn't care about it. We'd be pretty happy to enslave other people. We would. But we say, why does God wait? Why, why, why does it take so long sometimes? And that's, the, that's one of the hardest questions to answer. Why does God allow any of this evil in the first place? Why, and why does he let it go on for so long? Because sometimes it seems pretty bad. And there, there, are, you know, there are answers to that. There, there, and there, but are they always satisfying? You know, we, we, sometimes we look at, we say, you know, God respects human free will. And so, you know, God won't intervene in certain situations. But then there are other things in the Bible that kind of seem to think, indicate that actually God does intervene in different things and kind of override human free, free will at times. So you're like, that's not quite, there's something to that, but it doesn't quite satisfy. So why does God allow evil and suffering to happen. We know God is not the creator of it. We know he doesn't like it. But then why, why does he allow it to continue? It might be that we can't fully grasp or understand the answer to it. But let me propose that it's more to do with perspective than anything else. Perspective. If you see a child, a small child running, and they fall and scrape their knee... You've probably seen a child wailing and screaming 
in terror, like it's Armageddon, like it's the end of the world because they scraped their knee. And as a parent or as an adult, you know, like, okay, it's, you know, let's get a Band-Aid, let's clean it up, let's help them calm down their sobbing. And to them, it just seems like it's the worst thing ever. But as, a, as an adult, you know, they'll be all right. <laughs> you know, it's a few minutes, they'll be fine. It's an issue of, I don't mean to belittle anyone's pain. I have a lot of pain in my life. I'm sure we've all got different kind of pain. Not, I, don't, I don't mean to minimize it or say it's not important, but you've got to understand, the Bible says, it calls our pain and suffering, even if it's the worst form of slavery and oppression, or it's a scraped knee, it frames it as a light and momentary affliction. That's how it frames it. There'll be a day when we'll enter God's, if we believe in Jesus, we'll enter God's presence. And we'll, the bliss of, and the joy of being, seeing God truly as He is, being face-to-face with God, being in His presence, entering into that, that future kingdom, and we'll suddenly realize... Oh, this changes everything. I didn't realize it would be this good. All of that pain, all that, ah. If only I'd had this perspective then. Don't mean to minimize. Don't mean to, I'm not, we certainly can't ever use that to justify pain or leave people in their pain. No, we understand. For for that child, it seems like it's the end of the world. And so we, we have compassion and we care, but we also have a perspective when it's happening to us. This is a light and momentary thing. Let's have the band come up. We want to respond and worship. We need to draw our strength from Jesus. God's will cannot be stopped. It cannot be thwarted in any way. And so God, His timing is different to our timing. We would like Him to act more quickly. We would like to see certain outcomes and results more quickly. But we can't, we can't, we can pray and we can take comfort from the fact that God hears those prayers and responds to those prayers. That's what the story tells us. We also see that even though God raises up deliverers, and heroes and leaders to do great things, and Moses was, was one of them. God can use us in profound ways as well, but what we, what we really see is that rather than being Moses in this story, we're more like the Egyptian beating the Hebrew or the Hebrews fighting amongst themselves or the shepherds attacking the Midianite women and whatever it is, or Moses when he murdered this Egyptian. That's, that's our role in the story. We always want to put other people as the villain and ourselves as the hero, but the story of the Bible is that humanity, see, we're so tribal. I'm good, they're bad. I'm right, they're wrong. The story of the Bible is, no, we're all bad. God is good. That's the story. Jesus said that no one is good but God. No one. So through the coming of Jesus, through this deliverer, this one great Savior, He doesn't just rescue people from physical oppression and physical pain. He comes to forgive them of the own oppressive natures of their own heart that would seek to perpetrate more evil in the world. That's the ministry and work of Jesus. Trust in Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. If you're a follower of Christ, know this, that you have been saved and adopted, rescued and established, if you don't know Jesus today, come into his family. It's so simple. You repent and you, you declare your need for him.